Well, if you have your Bible, I invite you to turn with me to Exodus chapter 11, where we'll read in just a moment from chapter 11, but this morning we're actually going to look at chapters 11 and 12. And we've been in a series of studies through these early chapters of the book of Exodus, and over the last two or three weeks, we've considered how the plagues of judgment, those ten plagues that are described in these chapters, how it represented God's judgment really on the false religious system of Egypt. Exodus chapter 12, verse 12 says that it was God's way of executing judgment on the gods of Egypt. Not that those gods were really gods. They were the inventions of man. They were idols. And yet there was a spiritual power uh, because demonic power is always uh, the real power behind idolatry. And so in these plagues, God judges Pharaoh for the way that he kept the Israelites under a heavy yoke of oppression. But at the same time, in so doing, he's executing judgment on those idols that the ancient Egyptians worshipped, thereby proving that they were empty saviors. And so by this point in the story of Exodus, nine plagues have already taken place, and we've witnessed how these plagues brought mental distress, uh, plagues one, two, and three. Um, plagues four, five, and six brought physical discomfort, and then plagues seven, eight, and nine bring economic disaster to the entire nation of Egypt as God judges those very things that the, the Egyptians look to as their source, their strength, and their salvation. And the fact of the matter is, all of us look to something to be our source, to be our strength, and to be our salvation, or the ultimate answer to our problems. And so by turning the Nile River into blood, uh, God's judgment was decreed upon their idols and false gods such as Hapi or Osiris, who represented abundance and life. By overrunning the land with frogs, judgment was decreed upon the goddess Heket, whom the Egyptians worshipped as the goddess of fertility. By sending swarms of lice, and then that being followed by swarms of flies. All of those gods whom the Egyptians worshipped as being in control of the land and the insect population, all of these were proven to be powerless saviors. The death of the livestock. This was a judgment against the very symbols of their strength as a nation. A plague of sores attacks their physical strength and the ritual purity of their priesthood, which would have been so very important to the Egyptians. Gods like Sekhmet and Imhotep, who were associated with healing and medicine, all of these were proven powerless saviors. And then that's followed by a plague of hail that decimated the produce of the land. So now the nation couldn't fall back on their economic strength. All of that was being judged. What was left over from the plague of hail was consumed by locusts. And so Nut, the goddess of the sky, or Sinahem, goddess of the, the heavens, these were supposedly in control of these elements. But you see, God is proving that he alone is sovereign over the elements of creation as creator. And all of Egypt's idols were proven to be powerless saviors. The ninth plague involves God turning out the lights in Egypt. 
as the sun was darkened for three days, and in so doing, God proved that their chief deity that they worshiped, Ra or Amun-Ra, was a powerless savior who could not save. Now, you'd think that with all of these judgments and with the glory of the land being brought to ruin, you would think that Pharaoh would humble himself, but that's not what we're told here in Exodus because he still has delusions of deity. Even in his final audience with Moses, he makes this outrageous claim that he held the power of life and death. If you go back up to the end of chapter 10, Pharaoh says to Moses in verse 28, get away from me, take care never to see my face again, for on the day you see my face, you shall die. And so these words really were an ominous sign of what Pharaoh will experience next as the result of his own hardened heart. And so all of that which has happened thus far was bad enough, but the worst plague is the last plague and the tenth plague, which really stands alone all by itself. Because this is a plague that brings spiritual devastation to every home, from the home of Pharaoh all the way to the home of the lowliest servant in the land. And this last plague involves the death of the firstborn in Egypt. So I want you to read with me in verse 1 of Exodus chapter 11. The Bible says that the Lord said to Moses, yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, and in the sight of the people. So Moses said, thus says the Lord, about midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt. And every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who's behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. And there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you, and after that I will go out. The Bible says that Moses went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. I want to speak from this subject this morning, one final plague, because the death of the firstborn all throughout the land of Egypt, this is the final plague of judgment that God pours out upon Egypt just before bringing his people out of their bondage. Now, after all of the wonders that God has performed, all that we've considered thus far in our study of, of the Exodus, it's amazing to me that Pharaoh is still operating under this delusion that he is the Lord of life and death. 
And so it's necessary that God send this final plague, which really is the deadliest of all. Now, one thing that we've noticed about each of these plagues is the fact that God is really reducing order uh, into chaos, almost as if it were a reversal of creation itself. Now, there was a universal principle that the Egyptians believed in uh, known as ma'at. And they believed that Pharaoh, whom they worshiped as, as an incarnation of the gods, they believed that Pharaoh held the power of ma'at. It was Pharaoh who kept everything in its proper balance in Egypt. It was Pharaoh who kept everything in its proper order all throughout the land of Egypt. And so imagine their surprise then when what they, known, what they had known as ma'at is brought to complete ruin and chaos through these series of judgments. And this last plague, the death of the firstborn, is yet one more reversal of creation. You remember in Genesis chapter 1 that the Bible says it was on the sixth day of creation that God breathed life into the man that he had made in his own image. So that man became a living soul. But you'll notice here that the tenth plague involves a removal of that breath among the firstborn of Egypt. This is why James Montgomery Boyce says that these chapters in Exodus really represent the very heart of the book of Exodus. And because this Passover event is at the heart of all Old Testament theology, you might could say that this section could very well be the heart of the Old Testament. Because this last plague, the death of the firstborn, and then the way that God's people were spared from this particular judgment through the Passover lamb, all of this really is the heart of Old Testament theology that, that tells us our God is a God of redemption and salvation, and that our salvation comes through the blood of a lamb. And by the way, isn't that your story as a Christian? Isn't that my story as a Christian? Uh, how is it that we have any hope of salvation, but that a lamb, the lamb of God, has died in my place as a sinner? And that's what Passover really points to. So I want you to notice a few things about this final plague. Number one, notice with me that it involves an explanation that really precedes the judgment of God. And that explanation is given in this 11th chapter where God says to Moses, I'm gonna bring one more plague upon Pharaoh and upon all of Egypt, and after this, he's going to let you go. In other words, this is going to be the straw that breaks the camel's back. This is going to be the plague after which my people are going to be released from their captivity. And so in the chapter, Moses essentially tells Pharaoh that five things were about to happen. First, he says that God is going to pass through the land of Egypt at midnight. God is going to pass through the land in a manifestation of his own power at the midnight hour. And then secondly, when God passes through the land, all of Egypt's firstborn will die. And again, that's from the firstborn of Pharaoh to the firstborn of the lowliest servant in the land. God is no respecter of persons. There's going to be a death in every Egyptian home. The third thing that Moses says is that this is going to lead to a time of unprecedented national distress. As every home is touched by this judgment of death and there's not a home in Egypt where someone hasn't died, Every person is going to experience the pain of loss associated with the death of someone that they love. 
Now, can you imagine if you were in Egypt that night and you begin hearing the, the wails and the sobs and the cries begin going up throughout all of the land after the angel of death passes through? Anita and I were watching uh, the Ten Commandments, the movie, last night on ABC. It's always on television, it seems like, this, type of, this time of year, somewhere around Easter, but the scene of this last plague in that movie, last night, it just I guess because I knew I was preaching on this, I really was watching, and I just thought, man, could you imagine what that must have been like to hear all of those cries and all of those tears and all of those sobs and what a scary, fearful thing that must have been. And so it leads to this national distress. And then the fourth thing that Moses tells Pharaoh is that God is going to make a distinction between Egypt and Israel. There's going to be a very noticeable difference of what happens among God's own people in Goshen versus what happens as far as the rest of Egypt is concerned. Now we've seen this before with the other plagues, how God would spare his people from the judgment, not because his people were morally superior than the Egyptians, not because his people were ethnically superior than the Egyptians. That's not why God makes the distinction. Because we find out later on that, that even the Israelites themselves got carried up in idol worship during their years uh, in Egypt. What is it that makes the difference? There's only one thing, folks. It's the electing grace of God that makes the, the difference. The sovereign purposes of God in fulfillment to the promise that he made to Abraham and Abraham's descendants. That's the only thing that makes the difference. It's the grace of God. And then the fifth thing that Moses tells Pharaoh is going to happen is that there will be a sudden departure of the Israelites. With this final plague, Egypt's going to be completely brought to its knees and they're practically going to beg the Israelites to go up out of the land. Now, oftentimes it's here that skeptics want to criticize the God of the Bible by questioning whether it was right for him to do such a thing. And you may have had conversations with people. Maybe you've even found yourself wondering, the God of the Old Testament seems to be a vengeful, wrathful God, while the God of the New Testament seems to be a God of love and grace. Now, listen to me. Nowhere does the Scripture make that distinction between the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament because the God of the Old and the God of the New, he's still the same God. He does not change. And furthermore, who would you be as someone created to ever stand in accusation of the creator himself and say, what gives you the right to do what you do? He's God, I'm not. But the fact of the matter is, long before these plagues were ever poured out upon the Egyptians, God's word was clear. The very first thing that Moses had even said to Pharaoh many chapters uh, before, during his first encounter, Moses was told by God to tell Pharaoh, Pharaoh, you've treated my firstborn this way? You don't humble yourself, then here's what I'm going to do to your firstborn. So what you see here really is an execution of God's perfect justice. But the amazing thing to consider is not that God would kill the firstborn of Egypt. No, the amazing thing for us to consider is that God would allow any of us to live in his world to begin with. 
The fact that you and me are still drawing our next breath is nothing more than a token gift from a gracious God who's made us in his image, and yet we've sinned against him in his holiness. And so I think we fail to make the connection that this is really what all of us deserve. Because the scripture says that the wages of sin is death. The scripture says that we've all sinned and we come short of the glory of God. The scripture says that there is none righteous, no, not one. And the wages of sin, the just payment for sin, and sinning against a holy and righteous and perfect God is death. And Paul's clear about this and what he writes in Romans chapter 5. He says that sin entered the world through one man and death through sin. And in this way, death came to all men because all sinned. Adam's the federal head of the human race. And, and Paul's point in that passage that we are in Adam, therefore we are guilty. Adam's nature has been passed on to us, and so I'm a sinner by birth, and I'm also a sinner by choice, and you're a sinner by birth, and you're also a sinner by choice. Even the very best of us in the room is far from perfect when compared to the standard of a holy, righteous, perfect God. And so the fact of the matter is that when God chooses to claim a life, as he does here in this 11th chapter of Exodus, He's always justified in doing so because God is the one who gave that life to begin with. Pharaoh's not the Lord of life and death. No, God himself is. And so given the penalty against our sin, going all the way back to Genesis chapter three, this is the way that God declared that it would be because of sin. The question is not if we are going to die. Now the question is a matter of when. When we're going to experience physical death. The writer of Hebrews says that it's appointed unto man once to die, and after this comes the judgment. And so here's what we do then. We, we try to suppress and ignore this painful reality each and every day of our lives. And over the years, humanity has come up with an abundance of ways to try to cope with death and to try to cope with his own mortality. You've got various philosophies that man has tried to hide behind, such as the nihilistic philosophy of life that basically gives up altogether and says that life ultimately is meaningless and in the end, nothing matters. This was the philosophy of men like Nietzsche and others. And then you've got others who've tried to hide behind a hedonistic view of life where, where, where a person tries to distract himself with this mentality that says, just eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we may die. You only get so many trips around the sun, and then no more fun, it's all done, you become nothing more than a worm feast. There's a lot of people who believe that. And then you've got some who try to hide behind a moralistic view of life, and, 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 and what they do is basically they say, you know, I've tried to be a good person throughout my life. And so he looks at the reality of death and says, well, maybe if my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds, then, then God, whomever he may be, surely he's going to take all of that into consideration, and that's got to count for something. And then you've got a whole lot of people who go through life and they ignore the reality of death altogether. They don't want to think about it. They want to ignore it. You know, Solomon was the wisest man who ever lived. And you know what he said in Ecclesiastes chapter 7 about death? Listen to this. 
He said, it's better to spend your time at a funeral than at a party. After all, everyone dies, and the living should take this to heart. So the fact that the firstborn of Egypt die in this passage, this ought to be something that causes pause in my life and your life, and the living should take this to heart because death comes to every man, and death comes to every woman. And Solomon's point in Ecclesiastes is that death has a lot to teach us about life. It will do your soul a lot of good to attend a funeral and be reminded of your own mortality. And he says wisdom means that you need to take a walk among the tombstones. Kind of reminds me of an epitaph I read that was on a grave marker somewhere that said something like this. Remember, man, as you go by, as you are now, so once was I, As I am now, so shall you be. Prepare thyself to follow me. To which an unknown passerby read those words, and then he replied, to follow you, I'm not content until I know which way you went. (laughs) But you get the point. A funeral does more for your soul than a party because death has a way of reminding you of your own mortality. And so when you look at this, and you you may be tempted to think, okay, God is being really harsh here in this final judgment against the Egyptians. You need to remind yourself that this is the same sentence that's really been passed against all who are in Adam. Because in Adam, all die. Because in Adam, all are sinners, both by birth and by choice. Now, there's a second thing that we need to understand from this passage. The explanation of judgment leads to a preparation that protects God's people. And this really is the subject matter of chapter 12. Death would come to Egypt's firstborn, but listen, God says that not a dog would growl against any of the people of Israel. Now, there may be even an allusion here to a particular deity that the Egyptians worshiped known as Anubis. I'll go back to the Ten Commandments for just a second. I noticed this last night in that movie, the, the scene where Yul Brenner, his Pharaoh, when, he's, when Pharaoh is in the, the chamber with his son who's on the sick bed, there at the foot of the bed were two statues of Anubis, whom the, the Egyptians worshipped as being the lord of the underworld, the god of death. And Anubis had this dog head. Oftentimes you see this in a lot of Egyptian uh, uh, artifacts, museums, uh, pictures of, of Anubis, the god of the dead, the god of the underworld. So the idea here, when, when Pharaoh's being told that not a dog would growl against any of God's own people, it's a reminder that God is the one ultimately who's lord of life and death. Not Anubis, not Pharaoh, no one that the Egyptians worshipped, no, God himself and God alone. And so there's going to be this miraculous display of God's power to preserve life and to save his people, but they had to prepare for this coming plague in a very specific way, and all of those instructions are given in chapter 12. That's the subject of chapter 12. What does God tell his people to do? Well, he says that they need to take a lamb. Every household needs to take a lamb without blemish. They're to keep that lamb close for several days, and then at a particular time, they're to kill it, 
They're to take its blood and apply it to the doorpost of the house. That way, when the Lord passes through the land of Egypt, when he sees the blood applied to their doorposts, God would pass over that house and move on to the next. Now, you need to know something. Death still came to that Israelite household, but it was the death of a substitute. It was the death of a lamb that provided an atonement that saved those who were sheltered and refuged beneath that blood. Amen. Getting ahead of myself. Might have got to back on up. We'll get there. Because without the blood, they too would be subject to this last plague. God's no respecter of persons. If any Israelite determined that he thought it was too bloody and too violent to slaughter a lamb and apply that lamb's blood to their doorpost, he was just going to bank on his own moral performance to get him through the night, he wouldn't have survived the night. Because God's no respecter of persons. Judgment would come to the Israelite household just as it comes to the Egyptian households. So the preparations then that you see here in chapter 12 are preparations for the Passover. And so it involves a Passover lamb that was to be carefully selected. Verses one through five of chapter 12, uh, this is what the Lord tells Moses. The lambs were to be carefully selected and all of this was highly significant. Passover was significant in the life of Israel as a nation. In fact, it's so significant that we're told here in chapter 12 that God literally changes the calendar so that they would always remember this watershed moment in the life of the nation. Verse two, God says, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. In other words, God establishes Israel's calendar on the basis of their redemption from bondage. So that at the beginning of each year, they would remember God's salvation and the ultimate price of their redemption. It was a new start. It meant that God had provided for their redemption through the life of this substitutionary lamb that dies in their place. And so verse three, God commands every single Israelite man to select the lamb that would be a representative for his household. And this was so important. God's redemption of his people was something that needed to be stamped on their minds and hearts, passed on to the next generation. God's going to tell his people, even when they get settled into the land of promise, that this is to be a yearly observance. Passover needs to be a yearly reminder for the people of Israel of the price of their redemption. It would be an opportunity for them to teach their children and their grandchildren. You get down to verse 26 of chapter 12. God says, when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. And so the people then, they bow their heads in worship. And they recognize that this is solely the grace of God going to work on their behalf. Now these lambs that were selected had to be spotless. They had to be without defect. There could be no visible defect or deformity. All of these qualifications were very, very important because God wanted his people to understand that they needed a perfect substitute for a perfect sacrifice. 
And so the lambs were to be selected, and then the Passover lamb was to be slaughtered. Down in verse number six. They're to select it on the 10th day of the month, and then they slaughter it at twilight on the 14th day of the month, which means a total of five days from the day of selection, including the day of slaughter. This Passover lamb was to be kept in the family's home. Now, could you imagine little Israelite children perhaps getting attached to that cute? You ever seen a yearling lamb? How it's full of energy, would have been in the prime of its life? Our kids have a tendency to get close to little animals and pets. We do too as adults. But could you imagine after four days, the fifth day, perhaps how attached that maybe these children in the homes perhaps would have gotten to those Passover lambs? And then imagine the explanation that the Israelite father has to give to his children as he takes a knife and as he cuts the throat of that lamb and the blood of that lamb is shed and applied to the doorpost of their home. It's an object lesson, a very painful object lesson that drives home the point that freedom is never really free, that it always comes at a steep price. And so verse seven, God tells Moses, take the blood of that lamb, put it on the doorpost of your home, the lentil of your homes in which you eat it. So the end of the chapter, you see further uh, instructions given. They're to slaughter the lamb really uh, at the basin, which would have been the entryway into their home. They're to take hyssop branches, which sort of serves as a makeshift brush. They dip the hyssop in that basin of blood from that lamb, and then they paint their doorposts the side doorpost, and then they paint the top lintel of the doorpost so that the family is sheltered behind that door. Looking on from the outside, this would very much have resembled a bloody cross, which really adds a whole new weight when you compare that in light of what we read about the Gospels and the way that Jesus dies for our sins on a cross. The lamb's body had to be roasted and consumed whole. Not a bone was to be broken. Down in verse 46, God was clear in this command. Not one bone of the lamb had to be broken. But it's to be roasted whole in fire. Fire is symbolic of God's judgment. So here you have this violent death and this judgment of fire that come to this substitutionary lamb so that the Israelite household could be saved from the judgment. And then all of that had to be eaten with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. You know unleavened bread is bread without yeast. They didn't have time for their bread to be given yeast so it would rise. They didn't, all of this was, had, had to be done in haste, but, but you see yeast and leaven is always a picture of sin in the Bible. For seven days, the Israelite home had to be without leaven. And it's symbolic of how sanctification follows redemption. My sin has been put away from me through the death of Christ in my behalf, but now I've been separated and sanctified unto Christ, cleansed and redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. As a believer, I'm now to put away the leaven of the old life in the power of the Holy Spirit. 
the bitter herbs that they eat. Uh, These were intended to remind the Israelites of the bitterness of their bondage. It serves as a reminder that the firstborn children of the people of Israel lived because the Passover lamb had died. And so it's a reminder to us that as Christians, we ought to never forget the bitterness of the sin from which Jesus has saved us. Thomas Watson said that until sin be bitter, Christ will never be sweet. A person who doesn't truly understand or appreciate the depth of the sacrifice of the Lamb of God, they don't understand their own sin. They don't understand the depth of their own sin. They don't understand how their sin separates them from a holy God and how their sin is an offense to a holy God. And in today's religion of self-help, And positivism, nobody wants to go there because as a society of people, we want to tell ourselves that, you know, we're really good people. And then something as horrendous as a school shooting happens and everybody wonders why in the world. And folks, the answer is because man is depraved. Man is a sinner. Man is in need of rescue. That doesn't mean that every one of us are as bad as we can be all of the time, but it does mean that sin has affected every single part of me. My reason, my will, my emotion, everything about me has been tainted by sin. And I'm the biggest sinner that I know, by the way. But until sin be bitter, Christ will never be sweet. So the Passover lamb has to be selected. The Passover lamb has to be slaughtered. Verse 11 of chapter 12, the Passover lamb would be their security. God tells his people, this is how you eat it. With your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand, eat it in haste because it's the Lord's Passover. And God says, I'm going to pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I'm going to strike all of the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment, for I am the Lord. But the blood will be a sign for you. There on the houses where you are, and God says, when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you or destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So when the destroyer sees the blood upon the houses of these Israelites, he doesn't enter. You want to know why? Because death had already done its work there. There had already been a death that satisfies the holiness of God. The innocent had died in the place of the guilty. Therefore, divine justice is satisfied. And God says, when I see the blood, I'll pass over you. Which means that his eye was not on the house itself, but on the blood. It didn't matter if it was a big house, a small house, a beautiful house, an ugly house. It didn't matter if there was a nice ornate wreath that was on the door. God wasn't interested in that. If there was no blood to be found, judgment entered the house. Neither was God's eye on the individuals inside the house, which meant that a person couldn't retreat into his own moral performance as a sufficient atonement for his own sin to spare him from the judgment of death. There could have been good, decent, honest, hardworking people, descendants of Abraham, circumcised on the eighth day. All of that could have been real and good, but if there was no blood applied to the door, death entered the home. 
No, God's eye was not on the house itself. It was not on those inside the house. God's eye was on the blood. When I see the blood, God says, I'll pass over. And so they were to apply the blood to their doorpost by faith. It's faith alone that saves. And imagine, you know, Moses comes along. He's, he's telling God's people, this is what God's word says that you do in order to be saved from the judgment. They hear that. They have to respond in obedient faith and paint their doorposts with the blood of the lamb. And perhaps it didn't make sense to them. Perhaps it seemed violent to them. If there was an Israelite man who said, you know, I'm not going to do this because it's much too violent. It just seems so unsophisticated. I'm a decent person. Surely God will spare me and my household from this judgment. We're good people. If there was no blood applied to the doorpost, death did its lethal work because God is no respecter of persons. And so Hebrews eleven twenty eight says that it was by faith that Moses keeps the Passover and Israel keeps the Passover. It was by faith that they sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. Because without the death of a lamb in their place, there could be no safety and security for the people of God. So the explanation of judgment, all of that's given in chapter 11. The preparation for the judgment, this is given in chapter 12. But then notice, notice one last thing, how all of this really is an illustration that prefigures the work of God's Messiah. The end of chapter 12 talks about how at midnight God's true to his word. He strikes down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on the throne to the firstborn of the captive who's in the dungeon, the firstborn of the livestock. Pharaoh rose up in the night and he and all of his servants and all of the Egyptians and there's a great cry in Egypt for there was not a house where someone was not found dead. Can you imagine the loss these are people just like me and you who had dreams and aspirations and hopes for their children only to see all of that shattered by the painful reality of death. And there was not a God in Egypt, a false idol in Egypt that could save any of them from this painful reality. And so he summons Moses and Aaron by night, Pharaoh does, and says, get out, both you and the people of Israel. Go serve the Lord as you've said. Take your flocks, take your herds as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. What a painful, painful thing. But you see, all of this is an illustration. That salvation comes through the death of a substitute who dies the death that I should die for my sin, but that substitute dies in my place. And so it's in that sense that the Passover lamb is symbolic because lambs were to be selected and lambs were to be killed. This was to be a yearly observance in Israel. Now you fast forward 1,500 years from Exodus 12 to the week leading up to the events surrounding the crucifixion of Jesus, Passion Week. In fact, turn to John chapter 12. I want you to see this for yourself. Go to the Gospel of John, chapter 12.
Verse 1 of John chapter 12 says that it was six days before the Passover. So here we are as far as the chronology of events in the Lord's life. This is Passion Week, six days before Passover. Jesus, therefore, came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. They gave a dinner for him there. Martha served. Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. By the way, here's someone who's truly the Lord of life and death. Here's someone who raises Lazarus, who had died, who raises him to life again. Now, I'll be honest. If I was at that feast, I think I would want to sit next to Lazarus and just ask some questions. Lazarus, what did you see? Lazarus, what was it like? What, what, what was it like beyond the grave? So Mary takes a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard. She anoints the feet of Jesus, wipes his feet with her hair. The house is filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Verse 4 says that Judas Iscariot, though, he sees this and wonders why it was, the ointment was not sold and given to the poor. He uses this then to really become the excuse for betraying Jesus into the hands of the chief priests. Now, all that to say, go to verse 12, because it's really verse 12. I really want you to take note of what happens. Verse 12 says, the next day. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So what's so important about those three words, the next day? Well, to understand their significance, read this in light of what we know now from Exodus chapter 12 about Passover. We've seen how God gave his people some very specific instructions. Back in Exodus chapter 12, verse 3, on the 10th day of this month, that would have been the 10th of Nisan, which was the first month on the Hebrew religious calendar. On the 10th of Nisan, each Israelite family was to choose their Passover lamb without blemish, and they were to bring it into their home, and they were to care for it, including selection day all the way up until the day of slaughter. They have it for five days. On the 14th of Nisan, they were to kill the lamb just before sunset. They were to apply the blood to the doorpost of their home, and all of this was an act of obedient faith. Now, you connect the dots here in John chapter 12. Six days before Passover puts Jesus in Bethany on the ninth day of Nisan. The next day would have been the tenth of Nisan, or the very same day that the Israelites were to bring their lambs without blemish into their homes. The tenth of Nisan became the day of selection where Passover lambs were selected. So, so almost 1,500 years after the first Passover in Egypt, here's what's happening here in John chapter 12. Jesus is entering Jerusalem on a donkey. The tenth of Nisan. Crowds who were in Jerusalem to celebrate Passover, they meet him with palm branches shouting, Hosanna, which means God save us. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Luke chapter 19 says that Jesus 
enters the city from the east, which means he's coming down from the Mount of Olives. He's coming into the old city through the sheep gate, which would have been the same gate that the shepherds would have brought all of the lambs being selected for Passover right into the city where they would be slaughtered, which means that on Palm Sunday, men and women, tent of Nisan, heaven's Passover lamb is being presented to the world. And everybody gets caught up. They're laying down their coats and they're laying down palm branches and they're welcoming him as Messiah. But you see here, they're understanding that he's going to bring them a political salvation and they're mistaken. They think that he's going to overthrow the the yoke of Roman oppression, which is why just in a few days, the same crowd that says Hosanna will be the same crowd that says crucify him. But all of this was determined in the counsels of God from eternity past. So why is, why is Palm Sunday so very important? Listen to me on this Palm Sunday because we remember and we celebrate Christ, our Passover lamb, presented as our spotless sacrifice, the one who comes to suffer and die in my place so that this, so that this guilty sinner could be forgiven and go free. The innocent takes the place of the guilty. The sentence of death is carried out and passed on Jesus who endures the wrath of God, the Lamb of God who's consumed with the wrath of God on the cross so that I can be saved. Yeah. So, all of that considered, it's why John the Baptist says at the baptism of Jesus, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's why Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, knowing that you were ransomed from your futile ways, inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things like silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish and without spot. And so all of this teaches me, folks, that Jesus alone is the sacrifice for my sin. Jesus and Jesus alone. There is a fountain filled with blood, drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Do you stand with me as we pray? All of these Passover sacrifices, all of the offerings, all of the bloodshed, all of the slaughter, all of this finds its fulfillment in Jesus. Now listen, all of us are in two categories this morning. We're either in Adam or we're in Christ. And the world wants to put us all in different categories and boxes. People retreat into various categories to try to find some sense of meaning and purpose and identity. But folks, here are the only two categories ultimately that matter. Are you in Adam or are you in Christ? The thing is, we all enter this world as Adam's descendants, with Adam's nature, in Adam. And the sentence of death applies to every descendant of Adam's race, me and you included. But the issue is, has the blood of heaven's Passover lamb been applied to your life? Without the shedding of blood, there could be no forgiveness of sin. It's only in Christ that we find salvation and refuge from judgment. 
And the good news of salvation and the good news of the gospel is that any person, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done in life, no matter where you've been, the Lord says, come to me, look to me, and be saved. Every head bowed and every eye closed on this Palm Sunday. Lord, thank you for your word. And thank you for the spotless Lamb of God who takes away our sin. Lord Jesus, thank you for suffering and dying, being the substitute, the answer, the salvation that we desperately need. There's not a person alive today that doesn't need this saving grace. And there's no hope for any person outside of this saving grace in the Lord Jesus. And Lord, if there's any person this morning that doesn't know Christ, Lord, may today, in an attitude of repentance and faith, may they look to Christ, believe in Christ, his death and resurrection, and be saved and set free from bondage. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.